Ms. Beckon. It's my great delight to uh, introduce this morning our uh, teacher, Amy McConnell. She has three sons, and some of you might remember that a few years ago she was the director of Thursday Morning Bible Study. She's taught uh, several times on Thursday morning, and it's always a joy because Amy has such great uh, trust in God's faithfulness and its grace, and that comes from her deep knowledge of Scripture and her, and her good insight. So thank you, Amy, for this morning. Thanks. It's such a blessing to be here this morning, and I sit out there and wonder, do you know what a blessing it is to be here to get to worship and praise and enjoy that music and learn and study the Word of God and to hear these praises? It's a blessing, and I hope you appreciate it and take it for granted. I um, made careful plans so I could be here with you this morning and be on time, which is kind of hard for me sometimes. But I'll tell you what I didn't plan on frozen fog. We live in Texas. I've never heard of it. I've never seen it. I didn't plan on patches of ice on the road. I didn't plan on a little boy with 102 fever. And I didn't plan on I-30 being backed up for miles. So with the help of some friends, I figured out an alternate route and I um, tried to get here on time and struggling with um, street signs that I couldn't read because of the frozen fog and I couldn't see those patches of ice. I thought, I feel out of control. <laughs> and I don't like to feel out of control. And I think most of us don't like to feel out of control. These last few months as I've watched the news um, and watched all the economic concern and crisis that that we're talking about. I've thought nobody likes to feel out of control. We've watched these major industries go from strength to bankruptcy. We've watched people who we thought were financially so solvent and such great business leaders um, face total loss and insolvency. And we watch that and we think, didn't they plan better? Couldn't they have controlled that? And the fear that sinks in is, well, if it could happen to them, it could happen to me. And we start thinking, what can I do to control my world so that I don't face the kind of uncertainty that I see going on around me? And the answer to that question is a little unsettling because the reality is we don't control our world. We like to think we do, and we are a generation of planners. We make our plans, we make our backup plans, we make our contingency plan, and then we work our plan because we like this idea that we know how things are going to turn out, that we can control how things are going to turn out. But the reality is, and God's been telling us from the beginning of time, we're not in control, he's in control. Now, maybe you're sitting out there thinking, okay, that's kind of a bleak message, Amy. That feels a little fatalistic. I came here to be encouraged. I think you can be encouraged in that. I think you can find that that knowledge really simplifies life. Because God tells us he is in control of everything, every outcome. But he lets us be in control of only one thing. And that one thing is our obedience. And he begins in the beginning of his Bible telling the people... I expect obedience from you. Obedience is totally within your control. You control that, and I'll take care of the rest. That's what he's telling the children of Israel, and that's what he's telling us every single day. He's controlling the world and the events, and it is simply our job to be obedient. 
And the book of Deuteronomy is really repeating the purposes and the plans and the instructions of God. He's telling um, his covenant people how they are to live in order to accomplish his plans. And he's already told them this once before, but we saw that the children of Israel became a disobedient nation. They became fickle and they turned away. And it was necessary for God in Deuteronomy through Moses to again repeat his plan repeat his purpose, and repeat his instructions to these people. So let's remember a little bit about that first generation. We need to know they experienced so many amazing miracles and signs of God's power and his might. He brought the plagues through Egypt. He parted the Red Sea. He led them by a cloud of fire at night and um, a cloud during the day. And then it all really culminated in this amazing experience at Mount Sinai where Moses used the words, God came to you in your midst. God spoke with you face to face. God gave his instructions to his people. And that was something that no one had ever seen or experienced before. This was a world where there were lots of false gods and lots of false beliefs. There were no other gods who dwelt in the midst of the people. There were no other gods that spoke to man face to face. There were no other gods who made their expectations clearly obvious, clearly attainable. This was something totally, totally different. So we see that to the children of Israel, God has proven himself. He's proven he is the one true God. He's mighty and he's powerful and he's holy. And in spite of all that proof, in spite of all that evidence, they still fall away from God. They lose faith in God, and they lose faith in his purposes and his plans. Now, falling away with God doesn't destroy God's plans. It doesn't derail God's purposes. He'd made a covenant agreement with those people, and their disobedience does not break the covenant. But it does this. It delays the blessing. They totally had it within their control to be obedient and to receive the blessing of God. But the disobedient don't break the covenant. They simply forfeit the blessing. And they delay the accomplishment of God's beautiful purposes. So the book of Deuteronomy is taking them back to the beginning. And it's retelling them God's purposes and God's plans. He's asking for hearts that are totally obedient to them. We ended last week with Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. These really are the most important words here, and I've put them on your verse sheet. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength. God is telling his people, again, that he wants wholehearted devotion. That's what he's asking of them, and that's what he asks of us today. And here's the encouragement. We have total control over that. We have total control as to whether we will give God what he's asking of us. Another interesting thing about Deuteronomy, it's really written in a style that the people of that day would have easily recognized. It's written like a formal treaty, like a law, just like we might pick something up and totally recognize it if it was written like our Constitution. They would recognize that the style of this writing follows the exact same format 
of a formal treaty. This was written in about 1400 B.C., and during that time, the people were very accustomed to countries and nations and tribes warring and fighting and conquering each other. And whenever one nation conquered another nation, they would write up a treaty, and the victors would be the rulers, and the subject people would be the subject people. And a treaty would have three things. It would list clearly what the ruling people were going to do, what their obligation was. It would list what the subject people people's obligation was, and it would have a statement that says this treaty is in effect as long as both sides honor their responsibility. So this is written, the book of Deuteronomy is written in the exact same format. Now in each of those treaties they were written with very specific sections. Deuteronomy, the sections in Deuteronomy line up exactly with the sections that you'd see in those formal legal treaties. And what we're reading today in chapter 6, 7, and 8, this comes at exactly the same section where the formal treaty would have explained the obligation of the subject people. This is the obligation of God's subject people. But what I love about it, what's different, is God really doesn't allow it to read just like a set of rules. He's not just telling them, do this, do this, do this. Because God doesn't want any of us to be simply rule followers. Remember, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength. He doesn't want people who are just jumping through hoops, just performing. He wants for us to understand the personal nature, the personal obligation we have in our relationship with him. So just like the formal treaty, this is showing us the obligation of God's people, but it's also showing us what he desires from our hearts, what kind of heart is required to live as God's people. And the kind of heart that's required is a heart that is completely set apart and wholly devoted to God. And he wants this because it's necessary to accomplish his purposes. All through these chapters, we see God's purposes, not just his, underst- not just his instruction, but also the why behind the instruction. And God's purposes never change. We see them all through the Bible, and it's really quite simple. God's purpose is twofold, and this is on your outline, to bless individuals and to bless the world through his covenant people. That's the purpose of God, and everything he does is to accomplish that purpose, to bless individuals and to bless his covenant people. Now, I don't at all want you to think blessing means some worldly, cheap, materialistic kind of blessing. This is not at all God wants to be the genie in the bottle and give you whatever you ask for. It's something uh, much more important than that. The blessing of God is an eternal, abiding, saving relationship with a holy God. That's God's purpose, to have that kind of relationship with you and then to have that kind of relationship with the whole world. J.I. Packer described it this way, and I thought it was so beautiful. God's purpose is the endless expression and enjoyment of love between God and his rational creatures. An endless expression of enjoyment and love, not a cheap materially satisfying relationship, but an endless expression of love. That's the kind of relationship he wants to have with you, and that's the kind of relationship he wants his church to show the world. And we first learn that that's God's purpose at the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis 12. I included this on your verse sheet. This is the first covenant, the covenant with Abram. Genesis 12, verse 2 and 3. 
God promises, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the people on the earth will be blessed through you. That's God's purpose. You can have confidence in this. God's purpose doesn't change. His purpose is to have a love relationship with you and through you to have a love relationship with every family, every tribe, every nation in the whole world. And all of history and all of our Bible from beginning to end is the story of God trying to secure that relationship with you with individuals. And then he does this amazing thing. He ties all those individuals together into a group of covenant people. And it's through these covenant people that his ultimate purpose will be accomplished. It's through the covenant people that he will bless the whole world. Vicki said she likes reading her journal because she knows how the last chapter ends. We know how the last chapter ends, too. In the beginning, in Genesis, he tells us his purpose. Bless individuals, bless the world. Listen to how it ends. Listen to Revelation 7-9. And I saw a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. When I read that, I think, J.I. Packer got it right. That's it, an endless expression of love. And it's not with one person. It's a multitude so great that they can't count it. That's how the story ends. That's God accomplishing his purpose in the world. So even though we're studying the Old Testament, the Old Testament, God's people are the children of Israel, and he works to accomplish his purposes through them. But in the New Testament, his children are the New Testament church, and he works to accomplish his purpose through us, through the body of believers. That's you, that's me, that's all of us who profess faith in Jesus Christ. We are the group that he has brought together to accomplish his purpose, to bless the world. That's why Deuteronomy is important to us. That's why this is more than just a history lesson of how they were supposed to live. This is how we are supposed to live. He's showing us what kind of hearts are required in us in order to accomplish his purpose to bless the world. So our confidence doesn't come with controlling our circumstances. Our confidence doesn't come in making our plans and seeing them work out the way we want. Our confidence comes in knowing God's purposes, in choosing to be a part of God's purposes. That's how we can have confidence, even when things are uncertain. So if we embrace that, and if we live to advance the purposes of God, he's telling us right here how to do it. So we're going to start in Deuteronomy chapter 6, and we had three chapters today. It's too much for us to read all of them out loud, so I've just picked a few out. Start with me in verse 10 through 12, and this is God showing us how we are to live in order to advance his purposes. When the Lord your God brings you into the land, he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to give you, a land with large, flourishing cities you did not build, houses filled with all kinds of good things you did not provide, wells you did not dig, vineyards and olive groves you did not plant. Then, when you eat and are satisfied, 
Be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Now drop your eyes down to verse 17. Be sure to keep the commands of the Lord your God and the stipulations and decrees he has given you. Do what is right and good in the Lord's sight so that it may go well with you and you may go in and take over the good land the Lord promised on oath to your forefathers. Just so you understand, they've spent more than 40 years since they left Egypt. They have heard of the promises of God their whole life. God is standing them here on the edge of the Jordan River where they can see the land that he has promised them and he's about to take them in. But he's giving them three very clear instructions of how they are to live as they receive this blessing. And the first one is they are to live as obedient people. That's first on your outline. Obedience to God is always important. And he tells them why. So that. He uses the word so that over and over in here so you can understand the purpose, the desire behind the instruction. So that it will go well for you. That's why obedience is important. Now, in case you've forgotten, I don't see how you could have, but God's purposes are always good. He's never capriciously just giving out a set of rules. He's not created a bunch of hoops for you to jump through. He's given us rules for our good, and he's asked us to be obedient for our good. I had you do a little assignment in your homework. I had you read through these chapters and look for the words, so that. So you could really understand what is God trying to accomplish through our obedience. And I want you to listen to this list. Obey so that it may go well with you, so that you might always prosper and be kept alive, so that your obedience will be like righteousness, so that you will be God's people, his treasured possession, so that you will know the Lord your God is God, so that the Lord will keep his covenant of love with you, so that he will love you and bless you, so that you will be saved from the destruction of idol worship, so that you will live and increase, so that you will be humbled, so you will know that man does not live on bread alone, so that you won't become proud and forget the Lord, so that in the end it might go well with you. That's an impressive list. That's pretty clear to me that God's desire for us is that he will bless us. He knows what's good for us, and he gives us rules and instructions to obey so that he can do those things for us. The danger in times of prosperity and ease, which the children of Israel are about to experience, is to become prideful, to think, I accomplished this on my own. Now I'm going to sit back and make my own set of rules and do my own thing. And God is telling them, be careful. It's a warning. Continue in obedience. Continue in obedience so that I can bless you in these ways and bless others through you. It's a message all through the Old and the New Testament. On your verse sheet, Exodus 19, 5 and 6. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant... Then out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. He's making it clear. Obey me so I can bless you. Obey me so I can bless the world. This is the means to accomplishing God's purposes by obeying his rules and his commands. 
I grew up in Austin. My grandparents had a beautiful lake house outside of town. My memory is spending every warm weekend with my family at the lake. And like so many foolish girls before me, I worshipped the sun. And I spent a lot of time floating on a raft out in the water with my parents saying, you have beautiful skin, we wish you would take care of it, and foolishly not listening to them. I have a memory of one day I was a teenager floating on the raft out further past the dock. My dad and my granddad were working along the shoreline clearing away some plants. And suddenly my dad shouted in a very strong voice, Amy Karen, get out of the water. I was so startled because my dad never yelled at me and he rarely used both of my names. And I immediately thought, am I in trouble for sunbathing? And it didn't make any sense to me. But I'm very grateful God gave me an obedient spirit. So even though it didn't make sense, I got off my raft and I started kicking my way down to the end of the dock where the ladder was. Once again, I heard my dad's voice, no, don't swim to the ladder. Get out now. Confusing. If any of you have ever tried to pull yourself up onto a dock without the use of a ladder, it's not easy. It didn't make any sense to me that my dad was shouting at me to climb up on the dock on this end. But again, obedience kicked in and I did it. And very shortly, my dad was running down the dock, putting his hand out, helping me get up on top of the dock. It wasn't until I was there that I could see my granddad over along the shoreline with a hoe, searching through the weeds, anxiously scanning the surface of the water. My dad is scanning the surface of the water. And he looks at me and he says, while we were working, we disturbed water moccasins. And those water moccasins slithered down into the water where you were swimming. That experience burned into my memory so many applications, parenting applications, but also spiritual applications. Parents shout commands at their children because they know what's best for their children. And God is the same. God tells us what to do because he knows what's best for us. He knows when we're swimming with snakes and he knows when we need to get out of the water. His instructions are for our good and for our blessing. And we are so unwise if we choose not to listen to his instructions. Obedience always yields blessing. Disobedience brings discipline, and it also delays the blessings of God. It delays accomplishing God's purpose. So don't forfeit the blessing. Live as obedient women. Not only does it preserve your life, but it advances God's purpose. And it's a means to great fellowship between you and God. And it's something you have total control over. Chapter 7, the instruction is a little bit differently here. These are instructions about how they are to live in relation to other people, in relation to pagan people who do not recognize the one true God. And the instruction here is they are to live as a people who are set apart. Remember, God is about to bring them into this great land that he has promised them for years and years and years. But there are pagans in this land. There are mighty, powerful tribes and nations occupying this land. And God is telling them that they are to move in and clear it out and live separately. I think it would be really easy to misinterpret this chapter completely, to get so bogged down in this harsh language, destroy your enemy, 
wipe them out, make no treaties with them, show them no mercy. I think it would be so easy to read these chapters and think he kind of sounds like a cruel God here. But the point of this chapter is not at all about the overpowering of enemies. The point of the chapter is in living differently from the rest of the world. They are called to live as a people set apart. And they are to be set apart because it accomplishes God's purpose. I don't believe he ever intended his covenant people to live a totally isolated and communal life, never interacting with the unbelieving world, but he does tell them they must live differently. He tells them they need to be dependent on God alone, not on another nation. They need to give their allegiance to God alone, not another ruler. They need to put their confidence in God alone, not in another army. And they need to embrace the ways of God alone, not the ways of pagan people, people who don't follow the one true God. And he shows them how faithful he is. In this chapter, he tells them, I'm going to be the one giving you the victory. They are mighty and powerful people you're up against. I'm going to take you in. I'm going to defeat you. It's go- defeat them. It's going to be God's work. And he keeps telling them that. But he also tells them they must actively participate in this process. They must, must play an active role in living separately from the world. They're not to sit back and let God take care of all of it. And they're certainly not to think it's a beginning and a middle and an end. And what's it's accomplished, it's easy to live separately. He's telling them it is an ongoing and a determined process that you must engage in in order to live different from the rest of the world. And it is an active process. Listen to his words. He says, you are to break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, cut down their Asherah poles, burn their idols in the fire. Don't intermarry with them. Don't give your children to them. And he doesn't just give them this set of rules. Of course, he tells them why. Look in chapter 7. We're going to read verses 6 through 9. This is why they are to live as a people set apart. Chapter, excuse me, verse 6. For you are people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the people on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other people, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your forefathers that he brought you out with a mighty hand and he redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations, to those who love him and keep his commands. He's telling them they are to be a holy people. Now, holy means something different when you're talking about the people of God. A holy God is sinless and perfect, and we will never be sinless and perfect. So he is not telling his people that they will suddenly be like God and holy and sinless. Holy in this instance means something different. It means devoted to God's purposes, dedicated to God's purposes, and set apart to accomplish God's purposes. That's the meaning of a holy nation. They're only holy because of their relationship with a holy God. And they are to live as a people who are set apart as holy as a royal priesthood. Priests connect God with men. That's why they are to live differently. 
And isn't that um, how God blesses us by revealing himself to us, showing us himself so that we know him? God reveals himself to the world the same way, but it's through people, through this group of people, he's going to show them who he is. He's going to show them how faithful he is, and he does it through a group of covenant people who live separately. And as the world watches, that ancient eastern world, as they watch the way Israel's God goes before them and wins victories and battles for them, Israel's God feeds them with manna and water that comes out of a rock. Israel's God speaks to them and dwells in their midst. When that world sees that, the world is going to say, I want Israel's God. I've never seen anything like it before. The world notices because it's different, because they are a holy people living lives that are set apart. And that's how God is going to reveal himself to the world through those people as they obey and give their wholehearted love and devotion to God. As the world sees this endless expression of love and devotion, the world wants it. The world comes to understand God a little better. And that's when the world says, I want Israel's God. Or I want Christ Chapel's God. Or I want that lovely Christian neighbor down the street. I want her God because she is different. I see that endless expression of love and I want it. That's how God blesses the world. That's how his covenant people bring his blessing to the world. There's another reason God asked them to live so separately, and it's because as creator, he knows our hearts. He knows how fickle they are. He knows how unfaithful they can be. He knows how easily we will transfer our love and our devotion from a God to some material image or thing. And that's what the people in the ancient world struggle with. It was easier for them to give their devotion to an idol, to some image. And God tells them, I don't want you to live that way. And so I'm asking you to be set apart and live differently so that I can guard your hearts, so that you can be active guarding your hearts from the idols and the false worship that all the pagans are participating in around you. So he says, don't be involved with their ungodly practices. Don't give them your children. Don't intermarry. Don't let that be a snare to you. And he tells them, listen to verse 26, don't bring a detestable thing into your house or you, like it, will be set apart for destruction. So many times in these first two chapters, he said, you are set apart to be holy. You are set apart for blessing. You are set apart to be a holy priesthood. And now he says, if you follow these idols, if you let them get too close, then you are set apart for something altogether different. Then you are set apart for destruction. That doesn't fit God's purpose. That doesn't fit God's plan. So to ignore the warning here, he tells them very clearly, it will lead to your destruction. I think it's just like he's shouting at them. Covenant people, get out of the water. You're swimming with snakes. He knows their hearts. He knows they must live separately. There must be separation to demonstrate a difference to the world and to protect their hearts from idolatry. I think today, um, you know, we think, well, we're going to avoid other world religions. I'm not going to find an idol and start worshiping it. I'm not going to start worshiping myself. I don't struggle with idolatry. 
I think perhaps we do. I think an idol for us may not be a carved image, but it may be anything that we give the love and the trust and the confidence that should only go to God. If we're giving those things to anything other than God, who's the only one who deserves them, then we do have idols in our lives. And maybe it's not a carved image. Maybe it's your financial security and your money in the bank. Or maybe it's your reputation and your successes. Or maybe it's children's reputation and their success. Or maybe it's just your plans that you've decided on and you're working and you're darn sure your life's going to end up the way you want it to go. Those things, when we put our confidence in them and our trust and our love, instead of our confidence in God, those things are idols. And all through this book, Old and New Testament, we have the instructions shouted at us. Stay away from idols. Flee from idols. They lead to destruction. In the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 10, 19, But the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I don't want you to participate with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. You can't have an idol in your life and serve and worship the one true God. Sadly, we know the story of the children of Israel. We know that they struggled with idol worship. We read the sad words from Jeremiah after they have pretty much totally given themselves over to idol worship. In Jeremiah 2.5, he says, They followed worthless idols, and they became worthless themselves. God is telling them, That doesn't fit my plan. That doesn't fit my purpose, and I'm giving you the instructions on how to avoid it. I'm telling you to live separately as holy people, trusting only in a faithful God. I don't believe for a minute that this is a command to never engage the unbelieving world. I believe quite the opposite. I believe it's a command to be so different, to be so protected, to look so appealing to the unbelieving world that they will be drawn to your God. In the New Testament, we read about that Romans 10, 14. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? God wants us to be separate, but he doesn't want us to be totally removed from the rest of the world. Covenant people need to live differently so that they can engage the world in an authentic and a holy and a beautiful way. And that's what accomplishes God's purpose for the world. So we live as obedient people, and we live as people who are set apart. And then chapter 8, we live in remembrance. This is what Vicki was talking about earlier. Let's look at 8, verse 2. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the desert these 40 years to humble you and to test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. Remember what he did for you in the desert. And then drop your eyes down to verse 10. When you have eaten and are satisfied, then praise the Lord. Excuse me. Praise the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Be careful that you don't forget the Lord your God, failing to... I'm sorry. My eyes are going as we speak. 
failing to observe his commands, his laws, and his decrees that I am giving you this day. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, and when your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase and all you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud, and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of slavery. He led you through the vast and dreadful desert, that thirsty and waterless land with venomous snakes and scorpions. He brought you water out of hard rock. He gave you manna to eat in the desert, something your fathers had never known, to humble you and to test you so that in the end it might go well with you. The message is consistent. Obedience brings blessing. And disobedience delays the blessing. There was a 40-year delay in God's blessing. The first generation lost faith in the promises and the power and the purpose of a mighty God. And 40 years wandering in the desert was the consequence. The Bible says this was to test you and to know what was in your heart. I don't believe God needed to know what was in their heart. He's God. He knew. I believe he did it to show them what was in their heart, to reveal the sorry, pitiful state of their heart. I believe it was um, to reveal himself to these people in a new way, to give them a remarkable experience of God, again, proving himself to them. So often, I think we think of this wilderness experience as a great punishment. And we think of God as the angry parent. You're grounded for the rest of your life, or for 40 years anyway. So go to your room. Go to the desert. It kind of sounds like my house, just a little bit. Um, I think, really, though, it's an inaccurate view. I think the wilderness experience was a blessing. I think it was a hard-won blessing and a difficult blessing, and it was costly, but I think it was a blessing. They were a fearful people. They put their confidence in so many other things, and whenever that confidence was shaken because things weren't working the way they expected, because they weren't controlling the outcome, they grumbled and they complained and they turned to other gods and they turned to idol worship and they lost faith in God. They lost confidence because they had their confidence in the wrong things. And God needs to change their confidence. God needs to take them out to a harsh place where there is nothing else for them to rely on but God. And he really just strips them. He strips them of any notion that they're controlling the events in their lives. He strips them of anything that they can falsely put their hope and their confidence in. And he puts them in a dangerous place and he takes care of them not in an ordinary way, not in a way that fit within any of their plans, that he takes care of them in a way that even their fathers have never known. That is a blessing. That is an amazing experience with God. And he tells them, I'm doing it for you so that it will go well for you, so that you will know my purposes are good, so that you will obey and follow me. We read verse 15. He talks about it was a dangerous place. There were snakes. There were scorpions. There was no water, only rocks. So that, I'll put you through all this, so that in the end it will go well for you. This experience was a blessing. He turns them from a fearful people into a people who fear only God. 
And that's what they needed to be because they were going to be the vehicle through which God blesses the world. And he needed to make them useful. I know that's a blessing. And he's telling them here, don't forget it. You know, it's like your kids. You punish them, and then they do the same thing again, and you think, how foolish. Don't forget the lesson that I had for you. Don't forget what God has done for you. He wants them to remember, and he tells them in here, teach your children. Teach the next generation everything about your desert experience. I know they're not the only ones who have desert experiences. A lot of us in this room have had our own desert experiences. And I'm not just talking about a single disappointment or a single heartache. I'm talking about experiences where God strips you of everything. All the things that you have falsely placed your confidence in. God takes them away and he lets you walk in the desert where you rely only on him. That is not a punishment. That is a blessing because you get the experience like they had. You get the experience of God taking care of you in such a faithful, mighty way like you never knew was possible. That's how God works to bless the world. And he's telling them, don't forget those experiences. Don't forget what you learned there. Don't make me take you back there again. Remember the experience. Teach these things to your children. Tell our friends and our neighbors, I've been in the desert. Let me tell you what God did for me there. What an encouragement to someone who's struggling. He's telling them, live in remembrance. Don't forget, he's a mighty, faithful God. And here's the beauty. He doesn't leave them in the wilderness. He doesn't want to keep any of us there. Once the lesson has been learned, once he's proven the faith that's in their heart, once it's real and it's genuine and they know that their confidence can be in God, then that's where they are right here. He brings them to the banks of the Jordan River and he shows them all these fabulous things they've been missing. Honey and milk and grapes and olives and crops. All these things that he's had to take away from them for a short period of time. He's about to give them those things back. And there's a warning. When you've eaten and are satisfied, praise the Lord. Remember, so that, so that it might go well with you. He says, don't forget the wilderness experience. Don't forget what God has done for you. It's important that we live with remembrance. The first time I read these three chapters, those two little words, so that, they just were bold the whole way through. So that, so that, so that. They're sprinkled through there, I believe, so that we can focus on God's good purposes, so that we can have confidence in God's good purposes, even when the world seems out of control, even when we're not controlling anything else. We can have confidence in the one who is. And God is working to fulfill his purposes. He's going to bless us, and he's going to bless all the people on the world, in the world, through us. In case you don't know how the Old Testament story ends, God fulfills his promise and his covenant to the children of Israel. That original promise to Abram, I'm going to make you into a great and mighty nation. He gives him a son. They do turn into a powerful, wealthy, feared nation. He does bring them into the land. 
they don't completely obey and clear out all the pagan forces um, that are in the land, but God brings them into that land. He gives them a mighty king, King David, who rules with wisdom and with might. And through the line of King David, he brings a savior into the world. He brings Jesus Christ to bless the world, to redeem the world from sin through these covenant people. He honors his promises. He fulfills his purposes. But he's not done yet. We are God's covenant people, just like the children of Israel. All of us are members of the New Testament church, all of us who have professed faith in Jesus Christ. And it is our job to work with God to accomplish his purposes for the world. If you think God's plan for you ends with you entering into a personal relationship with him, you're only getting half of it. That's half of his plan for you. His plan is corporate for you at this point, that you link together with other believers to form a covenant people who live differently, who shine like light in darkness, who live obedient lives so that other people look at you and think, I want their God, so that the world will want your God. Why in the world the God of creation condescends in this way to offer to make his home in the hearts of sinners and then to offer to link hands with us and let us work with him to accomplish his purposes it seems crazy he doesn't need us but he chooses to work this way so that in the end it will be well with us i don't understand it but i know it's a privilege and i know i have total control over whether I participate with God in this way or not. I have total control over my obedience and my living the kind of life God wants me to live. In Exodus, we read read those beautiful words where he tells them what kind of people he wants them to be. Listen to the exact same words in the New Testament. He's talking to you, to the New Testament church. This is 1 Peter 1.9. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, so that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. It doesn't end with God claiming your heart. It's about living your life as a covenant people, a royal priesthood, bringing the blessings of God before the world. God has a purpose to bless you and to bless the world, and those purposes don't change. When the financial world is falling apart, when your personal circumstances are not going as you had planned, God is in control, and he's given you control over one thing. Will you be a covenant keeper? Will you live honoring this covenant with God? If you're a covenant keeper, then you have received the blessing of salvation. And if you're a covenant keeper, then you are working to bring that blessing of salvation to the rest of the world. That's God's purpose, and it doesn't change. And it will be accomplished. I read you those beautiful words from Revelation where it's talking about a great multitude, so numerous that it can't be counted. Every nation, every tribe, praising God. Listen to Revelation 21.3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. 
just like J.I. Packer says, an eternal expression and enjoyment of love between God and you and God and his people. That's how the story ends. And you get to control if you're going to be a part of the story. Let's pray. Holy God, we thank you that your purposes and your love are pure and good and true and right. We thank you that even in uncertain times, your purposes remain firm and strong and unchanging. Thank you for your great love for us. Thank you for offering us the opportunity to receive your blessing, offering us the opportunity to bless the world with you. My prayer is that our hearts choose obedience that we live as women who are set apart, that we live in remembrance of all that you've done for us. Ask this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Thank you, Amy. A number of announcements today. The first one is that Ladies' Day Away is February 21st. It's a Saturday. It's here at Christ Chapel.